Lord willing, we're going to finish the Gospel of Luke next weekend. And uh, hey, that's going to be a good day, huh? For those of you who are newer around, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for a long time uh, with some long breaks in there too. And so uh, um, looking forward to coming to an end. I have been endlessly helped of it with... uh, helped by it and strengthened by it and able to see a whole lot more things a lot clear, more clearly about our days since we kind of re-picked up in chapter 16 to the end. Um, we're in the narratives of the resurrection of Jesus. And last week we were, we're going to be in verses 44 to 49. Last week we were dealing with Jesus appearing to the disciples and how sweet he is to them, and how gentle is, is he towards them as he seeks to build their faith. And, and here's where, in, in, in verse 44, he, he tells us, you know, why is he showing up to them? And there's one thing that Jesus wants the disciples to get. It's that it was necessary for him to suffer. It was necessary for him to rise from the dead. This is what the Old Testament always taught was going to happen of Jesus. And, uh, and once they're rock solid in their faith about this whole thing, then, of course, Acts tells us they become men who turn the world upside down. They go from men who are in hiding to men who turn the world upside down. And, and so nothing more important. You know, I know that uh, we often think at Christmas that we should just study the birth narrative of Christ, but um, we have to remember that the coming of Jesus was to suffer and die. His birth is glorious and miraculous and um, full of the power of the Holy Spirit and, and, and it's mysterious, his incarnation, that God becomes man. It's impossible. I mean, it's a head explosion kind of thing to us and it should be and it always will be, but he didn't come for us to just look in the manger. He came to die. He came to suffer and then to be raised in glory. And so um, this is what he's trying. He's trying to drill this in. If they're, hey, disciples, you have to get this. And that's how he's finishing his work here on earth with them, is drilling this into them. This is the whole reason that I came. This is what the Messiah has always been about in order to be the Savior of the nations. And so... Um, let's just read the passage beginning in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, to the disciples and to the others who were gathered with them and to those who were on the road to Emmaus in the previous context who are now there with them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, Old Testament, right? Thus it is written, this is, uh, he's, he's speaking of these things being written even under the Old Covenant. Thus it is written, after he opens their minds and he says this, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from 
Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, this is the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let us pray. Oh, Father, may it be our longing to call upon You to say, open our eyes, open our minds and our hearts to behold wonderful things from Your law. May Your Spirit illuminate our hearts to see and think upon Christ and to adore Him this Christmas season. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, it's fascinating because Jesus' singular mission is to suffer and die and to be raised in glory. It's his singular mission. At Christmas, we never talk about that. You know, at Christmas, we never talk about that. What we never talk about is that uh, Jesus actually entered the world in suffering. He entered the world in suffering. Not just, not just the kind of suffering of the manger reality or whatever actually happened there, right? But in fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah 31.15, the women were weeping because all the two-year-old boys and younger were sought to be killed. And Jesus had escaped to Egypt. And so Jesus is really born into war. He is shown to be the one who divides the world from the very beginning. And so um, I want to encourage you to think about that a little bit more as you think about the Christmas season. Because when you think about the Christmas season, what you think is, right, just all this calm, you know, silent night. That's all we think. That's how we think about Christmas. Everything is it's just everybody. This is the season where we just we just kind of go like this. <sighs> and there's a sense in which that should be the case. Our Savior has come, and our salvation is sure and secure, and we have peace with God, right? And in Christ, um, when Jesus comes to the disciples and says, "Peace to you," He's saying, "I'm pleased with you." I'm pleased with you. No longer is the relationship full of hostility. Remember in the context, the previous context, our relationship is not a relationship of hostility. It's one of peace with God. Right? We walk with Him in peace. But we don't have peace with the world. And Jesus, when He entered the world, didn't have peace with the world. And so, um, I want you to think about Christmas a little bit differently than you normally do because the Christ came suffering. He came suffering. And He didn't just suffer the day He went to the cross. And I want you to not be surprised that if you're faithful to Jesus this Christmas, that you'll have conflict. Don't be surprised. Like The goal of Christmas is not to avoid all conflict with your family and with the world and with Whoever, the goal of Christmas is not to avoid all conflict of all kinds. The goal is to honor Christ. The goal is to honor Christ and to follow Him in sharing in His suffering. And so, what do you think He wants the disciples to do here? Why is He so singular on telling them, this was my, these were my words. 
that the Christ would come and suffer and on the third day rise again. What is he trying to get them to do? What was the Apostle Paul trying to get Timothy to do when he says, share in my sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus? Think, follow him. Follow him in the same kinds of sufferings for the sake of Christ. And those who wish not to consider Scripture carefully and follow Scripture carefully, you will undoubtedly end up in conflict. And don't be surprised when that happens at Christmas. And don't be overly discouraged when you run into conflict with your family during the Christmas season. And don't go and say to yourself, oh, it's Christmas. Everything's supposed to be nice and neat and sweet and smell and beautiful aromas filling the house and and miss the reality that odds are if you're faithful to Christ this Christmas, you will face some kind of suffering. You will face some kind of rejection. And if if it doesn't happen this Christmas, you probably have experienced it before. All I'm saying is, don't be surprised by this reality. This is what Jesus is saying to you in real practical application. This is why I came for, and it's going to be the same with you when you are witnesses in my world, right? You know, I find myself in a fair bit of conflict. I'm glad I can laugh about it right now. <laughs> you know, I was talking with my friend Aaron, whom you all know, and um, we have a great burden. Aaron and I aren't the only ones. You know, that's not. We're, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying Aaron's friend, and, and we talk about this stuff frequently. And and we have a great burden for there to be a better pastoral theology in the life of the church today. And I don't want to go on and on and on about it right now, but I will tell you that Scripture forever talks about the work of a pastor and shepherd from the Old Testament all the way through the New and the life of Christ and beyond in the work of the Apostle Paul. I, I sat down this week and read all of Second Corinthians in a reading and just kind of thinking about it. It's really the Apostle, the Second Corinthians is the Apostle Paul's defense of his ministry. Um, and it's the defense of his ministry to the Corinthian church because of the super apostles. You know, the super apostles, those who are strong and great and mighty and ministry and whatever, you know. And, uh, you know, the kind of things that should disgust us, but we cherish. You know, the kind of things we look to as great and marvelous and fruitful in Scripture. And, and the Apostle Paul condemns them for their boasted mission. Their pride about all of their work. Their pride about all of their influence. Their pride about all of their great things they're accomplishing all over the world for the kingdom of God. And, you know, the book of Jude just says they're shepherds feeding themselves. These kinds of things. And uh, so my friend Aaron and I have been communicating a lot about this and... It really is amazing because Aaron said his judgment was, you know, in the 16th century, the real issue was justification by faith alone. In, you know, this is Reformation time. In the 17th century, he said, all the debate in the church was over reforming worship. You have to think. Of course, there would have to be the reforming of the worship of God because Rome had so corrupted it. And now you have the Protestant churches developing and kind of needing 
help figuring out what the worship of God looks like. And so then in the 17th century, you have that, and you kind of jump forward to today, and he said, really, today, the reform in the church that's needed is just pastoral theology. We need to understand, again, what it means to actually pastor the flock of God. And I don't know for sure if he's right about that or not, because there's a few other things I could put pretty high on the list that are needed in terms of reform in the church, but a lot of those things really are fruits of the work of a, past, of, of a pastoral theology. And I think for me, it's been really fascinating because I think I've just been waking up to how bad it actually is over the last several years. And what's been surprising to me is that pastors that won't commit themselves to a humble pastoral theology and to the pastoral care of the flock and of the sheep is how unwilling they are just to do the work and how unwilling they are to see evil right in front of their face and not ever deal with it. I think that's what's been um, most shocking and surprising to me. And, uh, um, and so when you start to do the work that actually requires reform, what do you think happens? You can do all kinds of work that doesn't really help the church that much. It doesn't get at where the church needs reformed. But what do you think happens when you start to deal with the stuff where the church is absolutely compromised and failing? Do you think we're absolutely compromised and failing by accident? Do you think that that somehow just happened? I think what I've come to realize is that the, the state of the church is willful, and it's not the fault of sheep. It's not the fault of sheep. I mean, this is what happens. And, 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 and hear my heart in this, because I'm not fighting with you about this. Right? I mean, I'll fight with you, but I'm not fighting with you, per se. Right? So all the books that are written today, just think about how much all they're doing is condemning the sheep, chastising the sheep. The sheep aren't this, and the sheep aren't that, and Christians aren't this, and Christians aren't that, and nobody's, and, and uh, you know, these are all of your favorite authors. But that's what they're doing most of the time. They're just chastising the sheep. And I just think to myself, I just don't think the sheep are the problem. Of course, do we live in a day where a lot of sheep profess to know Christ but don't know Christ? Do we have a lot of that? We have a lot of that. And whose job is it to do the work, to divide the world as best they can? It's the work of shepherds, of course. But why do we have these problems? Because shepherds neglect to do their job. And so what happens when you actually start to build a thorough pastoral theology and the nature of what it means to be a shepherd to help the people of God grow and just, you know, the Apostle Paul says, simple and simple or sincere, sincere and pure devotion to Christ, he says. You suffer for it. Well, who do you suffer for it by? The hands of other pastors who refuse to do their job and actually consider what Scripture says. And so when reform is needed, usually what happens is there's a huge blindness over Scripture. There's a huge blindness over Scripture that just like, it's like a veil. It's like a veil, and you can't understand it. And so the point, all I'm saying is, is if you actually follow Jesus... 
don't be surprised if you find yourself in conflict at Christmas, and don't be surprised um, and discouraged by it as if Christmas is supposed to necessarily be something that is just more peaceful and just more what the word is. You know, only calm and bright. Only calm and bright. Don't be discouraged when you find yourself at Christmas and don't lose sight of Christ and of the joy at Christmas when you find yourself in conflict because you have made an idol of calm and bright, but you end up with suffering. Jesus, right? When He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, He says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And when he says, you are witnesses of these things, right? He's saying, you're going to go preach repentance. You're going to go seek and call people to be reconciled to God, which means they have to turn away from their sinful, underhanded, deceived, evil, wicked ways. And they have to come to Christ. So when you do that, all will be calm and bright. And so Jesus is singularly trying to get them to see that this is the nature of my work. And when you are my witnesses, just don't be surprised at all. Don't be surprised at all when you go out and be witnesses and when you go share Christ with whoever you share Christ with and when you go you know, talk to your family or just when you're faithful to do what Scripture commands, your, your family, and shame on them, they will despise you for it and shame on them for that. You know, but what we long for them is to repent and to know the forgiveness of sins and to come to Christ in obedience and to know His salvation and His ways and to obey Him. Right? The goal isn't to be overly obnoxious, but the goal is to be true and to preach actual repentance. Right? I mean, what did the disciples preach? You are my witnesses. What did they, do? What did they preach? What was the first message? Think about this. When the text says... I never noticed this. I never quite thought about this till this week. Beginning from Jerusalem. You see that there? Look in your Bible. It says beginning from Jerusalem. Now think about that for a second. Where did the disciples start preaching? They started preaching in Jerusalem. Why? Well, two things. One, because even Jerusalem, that place that crucified Christ, when they, the Apostle Peter looks all of the Jews in the face and says, you crucified the Lord Jesus at the hands of lawless men. He looks them right in the eye and says, you crucified the Lord Jesus at the hands of lawless men. And God used that to cut them to the heart. Because then they say, what then shall we do? And he says, repent. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts chapter 2, right? And what starts happening immediately in Jerusalem? Well, the first point I want to make is even Jerusalem, repentance and forgiveness for the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus could come. Isn't that incredible? Repentance and forgiveness could come even to Jerusalem that just crucified Jesus. And what happens? 
God's Spirit starts opening up hearts and minds to see what they have done and how they have not seen the Messiah, Jesus Christ, coming and dying for them. And thousands of people start getting saved and gathering together. And you have the formation of the first church. It's a beautiful picture of the saving grace of God that as you go as witnesses to this suffering that Christ came to accomplish, as you go and as you suffer, people to the uttermost can be given the gift of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Right? It's beautiful and it's grace. And so, um, you will, so first I want you to understand that there's a beautiful picture of the grace of God when Jesus says, beginning from Jerusalem. But the, what's the second thing that happens? Right? They start to face suffering. They start to face suffering in preaching the Gospel, right? They start to face suffering. And I just don't want you to hate suffering. Look, I don't carry all of my suffering well. I don't carry the conflict that I am in at times well. It's not like I am all smiles and giggles 24-7, you know? And uh, um, in some days it weighs on me a whole lot more than other days. I mean, some of it I, I think, you know, some of you know that I have symptoms that flare up from time to time that seem to be oh, what chronic fatigue syndrome is. I just call it flu without a fever. That's the way to understand what it is. You feel like you have the flu, you just don't have the, have a fever. And I mean, that flares flares up from time to time, and it's what's been going on for the last week with me. And you know, you feel pretty weak. You feel pretty weak, and you think, man, why can't I just endure conflict in ways that aren't so stressful? I can't, I can't endure conflict in ways that don't seem to, you know, be so weighty. I I don't carry it at all in some perfect in some perfect way either but that's also just part of it that's part of it and I want to encourage you to be willing to just kind of face the difficulty and hardness of conflict and you know what I want share share in suffering with me share in suffering with me you know and I know you do and are and and will in, in, in countless ways but they start to suffer And so, I want to now backtrack through the text and just give you a couple simple encouragements. When Jesus says, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, they all testify about me. Everything that is written was about me suffering and dying before being raised in glory. And all he's doing is solidifying them at this point to be willing to be faithful to him through whatever suffering comes for preaching the gospel. Right? You'll, be, you'll suffer if you say Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation because He is the God-man, the only one who can pay for sins and reconcile, pay for the penalty for your sins and reconcile you to God. There is salvation in no one else. You will suffer as you say that. You will suffer as you command, as the Gospel commands you and commands all men. Right? The Gospel, command, the gospel is a command. Repent. And believe the good news. It's good news, but it's a command. Repent and believe the good news. You will suffer because when you say repent, what are you doing? You're going against every evil passion and lust of heart that men carry and desire. You have to give it all up 
and submit to Christ the Lord. That's the preaching of the gospel. That's the preaching of the gospel. Of course, the benefits of someone submitting themselves to Christ the Lord by faith is endless blessing. Righteousness and justification. Adoption as sons and daughters into His family. The free gift of eternal life. The forgiveness of their sins. The remission of their sins. The removal of all guilt of everything they've ever done. But it doesn't just happen apart from their repentance and submission to Christ as Lord by faith. And so I want to firm you up just a little bit like Jesus is, just so you can see just a little bit in just a few short moments that Christ is the center of this whole story. So, what had to be fulfilled in the law of Moses? These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. I want to focus on those three things just for a moment. What about the law of Moses? What about the prophets? What about the Psalms? And and I said a a few things about that two weeks ago. And I just want to say a few more things about it. And a lot more could be said about how central Christ is in the whole of the Old Testament and how much they testify to his death and resurrection. So what had to be fulfilled in the law of Moses? What did the law of Moses speak about Jesus? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, have you ever thought about the call of Abraham being messianic? The call of Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you in what sense? Meaning one would come in the line of Abraham. Abraham's faith is actually in the one who would come from him. And in this offspring, who is Jesus Christ, all the families of the earth would be blessed. This is Moses, right, writing this. Or if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 18, I'm just going to go through these quickly. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. So Moses speaking to the people of Israel. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This is Jesus. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And then he goes on to speak about the prophet who prophesies falsely. And how do you know a prophet prophesies falsely when they Uh, make a specific prophecy that doesn't come true. And here you have Jesus kind of recognizing that in this passage, that reality. He said to him, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. I am the prophet. I am the prophet. Again, 
from Moses, the one greater than Moses, the one long prophesied of me, everything written about me, it all had to be fulfilled. I told you I was going to suffer and die and rise on the third day, right? Did that happen? Here I am, taste, (laughs) touch, see, you know? It all happened. Or uh, Jesus in Genesis chapter 49, and I could just go on and on and on. And Genesis chapter 49, there's this beautiful statement about Christ. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And what is going to happen in in the next passage? He's going to be ascended to that place of reign over all the nations, king of the nations, as the Old Testament said he was and he was coming. Um, Repeatedly through the Psalms, that's the position he's going to assume. All of this, all of this, just a few examples from the law of Moses. The first five books of your Old Testament. What had to be fulfilled in the prophets? Have you ever thought about Jonah in terms of Jesus? Right? The prophet, the prophet who dies, is buried on the third day, is raised from the darkness to preach the gospel to the nations, and the nations would repent. Have you ever thought about Jonah in terms of Jesus? You have to get out of your mind. Well, it's not an exact, it's not exactly, it's not. That's not how it works, right? You think about the shadow. If Christ is the substance and you look at your Old Testament and if the sun is shining here and it's shining upon Christ, all of this is the shadow of the substance of who Christ is. So the goal isn't for it to be this perfect representation all the time. It's shadow, but recognizable. Right? But recognizable, right? A lot of times you could recognize my shadow standing next to you. Why? Well, it would be longer. I mean, think about that. It's incredible. Jonah is about the resurrection of Jesus. Raised in that repentance and forgiveness. What did Jonah do? He went to Nineveh. He said, the wrath of God is coming. Repent. What happened to Nineveh? They repented. What does Jesus say? That Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Well, Why doesn't Jonah raise from the dead and go preach to Jerusalem? Because the point is Jesus is going to be raised to preach forgiveness of sins to all the nations. Right? Have you ever thought about Jonah in terms of Jesus? The prophets... Or Isaiah 7.14, the classic, that Jesus is going to be born of a virgin. Or Isaiah 53, the passage that the Jews hate because it's hard to describe anything else in the world as in that passage except for the suffering and substitutionary atonement and resurrection of Jesus. Did you know the resurrection's in Isaiah 53, not just the cross? Isaiah 53, verse 10, right? He shall see his offspring. How? If he's dead, how is he going to see his offspring? How is he going to see 
the descendants of Abraham living by faith if he's not raised? Or Zechariah 12, that the Messiah would be pierced suffering and the resurrection in the prophets like Jonah, Zechariah, Isaiah, or Jeremiah 31.15, right? The suffering of the Messiah. Matthew picks up the suffering that's prophesied of the Messiah in Jeremiah 31.15 in the conflict that Jesus enters the world in. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. All of this suffering of Jesus in the prophets, what had to be fulfilled in the Psalms? The same things. The suffering and resurrection of Jesus. Psalm 16. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and in the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Right? This is, of course, uh, David. Maybe David thinking of his own resurrection. But on what basis does David think of his own res- resurrection? It's, it's uh, prophetic of the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah who will come in the line of David. Right? This is picked up in Acts chapter 13, where this is exactly what is said when it's applied. Acts chapter 13, verse 35. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. So Psalm 2 also. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, He, also, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. It's about Jesus raising from the dead, the one in the line of David. Or in Psalm 22, the righteous sufferer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know where that psalm goes? It goes to Jesus, the righteous sufferer, being the king of the nations to whom all the nations worship. Or Psalm 69, the same thing. The righteous suffering of the Messiah. It's all about Jesus. And here's the thing. I just, over the last couple weeks I've given you, because this comes up twice in the text. Remember um, on the road to Emmaus, it comes up in verse 27. 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them and all the, thing, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so I've kind of been throwing these things at you a little bit rapid fire so that you could see them. But here's the thing. None of them saw it. None of them saw it. None of them saw the suffering of the Messiah, which we, we look at and we point these things out and we think, well, how is that possible? Well, they didn't have faith in what Scripture said. Right? But they didn't see it. But there's this beautiful, wonderful thing that Jesus does here and it says, then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And all of a sudden, like the light shining across the darkness of the Old Testament and the whole purpose of the Messiah and everything became clear to them that this is exactly the way the whole history of the world was orchestrated for this moment. And we're here and we're actually the witnesses of it right here seeing it and also the witnesses who will take what we have seen and proclaim it. Repentance and forgiveness of sins to all the nations. But Jesus opens their minds to understand the Scriptures. And I just, you know, it was always our dear Bob. You know, every time we would do our men's doctrine and discipleship class, he would say, are you praying before you read your Bible? Open the eyes of my heart that I might behold wonderful things from your law. Because we need the Holy Spirit to understand the Scriptures. But Jesus gives them this gift here, and all of a sudden they understand And sometimes better than we understand today, a lot of our theology doesn't really recognize Jesus in the Old Testament. And when he opens their minds to understand the Scriptures, what is he doing? He's helping them to see Jesus. He's helping them to see that the whole Bible is a Christian book. The New Testament is not a Christian book, and the Old Testament a Jewish book. That Christ is the whole of it. Christ is the substance of it. It all is of Him. It is from Him, through Him, and to Him. And specifically, His suffering and death to be the Savior of the world. There's more in Scripture than just His suffering and death and God's unfolding plan in history, but, and beyond. But you can't miss that. You can't miss that. And I want you to see His suffering, His death, and His resurrection throughout all of Scripture. So that this isn't just a thing that kind of pops on the scene out of nowhere. This is the whole history of the world. Why? Because you are going to be His witnesses. What a great time to be His witnesses when you're around all kinds of people, all kinds of people at Christmas who need the forgiveness of sins. What a great time to be His witnesses. And He has opened your mind to understand the Scriptures that this is all about Him. Just don't be surprised if you suffer for it like he did. You know, I've often told you, and I keep telling you because I'll stop telling you once I think you really all believe it. That the day in which we live, if you are in conflict, it is your fault. Right? That's what we all think. We all think if you're in conflict with people, our first thought is, well, did you do it right? Because Jesus is so good, how could you ever end up in conflict if you were telling somebody about him? 
right, we think all these nonsensical things because we just don't have faith in what Jesus is saying. And I, you have to have faith in what Jesus is saying. Don't be ashamed of Jesus and his words. Have faith in God and you will be his witnesses and you will suffer. And every bit of it will be worth it. You know what I think? As I'm in conflict at various levels, most of mine is with pastors because a lot of the problem with the, that the, when the prophets preached against the shepherds, that was their greatest condemnation was the shepherds who were not doing the work of shepherds. Who were usually harming sheep. That's what they were doing. You know. And shepherds today are like, no, I don't want to go into this. I should be done right now. I just want to say that uh, conflict is very normal in the Christian life. And you have to see it through the lens of Christ and his suffering and his resurrection. Or you will never make sense of your obedience to be witnesses to the Lord Jesus. Okay? Stand with me for prayer, would you? Jesus, I don't, I don't really know what to say except you are the center of it all and we give you praise. Father, we say hallelujah that you reign over history and have exalted your Son to be the King of the nations. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful witnesses this Christmas who love with your Gospel and who call people to repentance and who are willing to suffer for your name as good soldiers of Christ Jesus. Help us to be found faithful. And would you give fruit to our work? And would you give us faith in your ways even when we don't see the fruit, Father? And help us to endure with faith when we don't see the fruit immediately, Father. We know that if we lift up our highs, there is a, uh, the fields are white unto harvest. And we pray that you would give us the joy of participation in reaping the harvest this December. May lost people seek you and find forgiveness and be saved and become witnesses with us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.